episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana. That song that you just heard, titled The Man by a group called The Killers, embodies what most men learn is what it means to be a real man. It's a limited belief about manhood, which Tony Porter, an author and educator and activist, calls the man box. It basically dictates that men have to behave as dominant and independent and quite often unfeeling exploiters of other people. Not exactly the type of person that intentionally seeks to be equitable and inclusive of women or diverse groups. So what does that mean for you and your company's efforts to drive equity and inclusion? And what can you do as an ERG leader to help your organization meet that challenge? That's what we're going to be exploring today. I've got a great guest lined up for this discussion, but before we turn to her, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Behringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. My guest today is best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and relentless optimist, Mo Carrick. Mo is also the CEO of an organizational development company, and she's a firm believer that in order for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts like ours to move forward, companies need the support of everyone, including men of every stripe. So with that, let's bring Mo into our discussion. Hi, Mo. Welcome to ERG Power Talk. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for having me. And I love listening to that song and how ironic that it's called The Killers, uh, <laughs> the band that played that song. But I'm delighted to be here with you today. And thanks for introducing me. And I think you pretty much captured some of the basics of who I am. Yeah, absolutely. Mo, tell us a little bit about your company. For sure. My company is Momentum Inc. We're a certified benefit corp. So we have a B Corp status like other notable benefit corps like Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's, which means we have a real commitment to the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. And I'll also add that my other job is that I'm the mom of three, stepmom to one. My kids are mostly grown, but that role has definitely played uh, large in my life as I do the work that I do out there in the world. So Momentum is a, uh, we call ourselves a, a boutique consulting firm. We work with organizations, as you said, in the realm of organizational development, but mostly we're inspired by creating great leaders and resilience in organizations, which includes dimensions of team health, creating cultures of belonging, examining culture, and of course, making great leaders who are good for people, helping them succeed. 
That's great. Mo, a while back, you did a TEDx talk where you expressed some concerns. And before we talk about those concerns, let's listen to a short clip from what you said during that talk, and then we'll get your reaction on the other side. Here's the thing. I love men. (laughs) As a white, heterosexual, cisgender, feminist woman, it's been part of my unconscious legacy to befriend, play with, work with, date, marry, divorce, and raise boys and men. And it's my love of men that makes me scared for them. So Mo, what are some of the challenges that men face that scare you? Thanks, thanks Joe. I think that they're myriad. And I wanna put a little caveat in there. When I gave that TED talk, it was my, my third talk. And I actually, the original proposal for the talk was to talk about being white and male in particular. And we modified the focus of the talk to be more broadly based around men in general. But I do want to call out and just, you know, mention that I think there are some real differences and, and the research points to some real differences around notions of masculinity as they play out across racial difference. And, and so in particular, per your question, I think I want to stay a little bit in my lane, which is the focus specifically on some of the characteristics of white masculinity that contribute to the challenges I see men facing today that may apply also to men of color, non-hetero men, et cetera. But I don't know for sure because I don't think that research has been fully vetted. Um, And because there's an end bothness, isn't there, where someone can identify as a man, yes, but they may also identify as something other than white or non-hetero normative, which creates a different level of layers. So I think white men in particular, on a sociological basis, and to a certain degree, men in general as well, we see really high levels of loneliness in men. Vivek Murthy, who was the Surgeon General under Barack Obama, uh, has declared loneliness an epidemic here in this country, and men suffer disproportionately from it, white men in particular. White men have also right now the highest incidence of um, death by opioids, highest suicide rates, particularly um, in young adulthood as well as in in the transition into retirement, high rates of depression and anxiety. And of course, we have the the violent shootings that have happened. The the mass shootings have been perpetrated singularly by by white men, young and and not so young. So like on, on a social basis, we have some real challenges. When we think about the man box, I think what we see is that in the construct, particularly of your audience, when we look at business and organizations that are um, trying to become cultures of belonging, men are, I, I think, are struggling with two main themes that I see. One is the, the notion of what does it mean to be the breadwinner. As it becomes harder and harder to get by with a family on a single wage, there's increasing pressure for men and, and ongoing relentless pressure around what does it look like to be the provider against also the notion of what does it mean to be a good leader? Because we really see the story of what a good leader looks like, the story of that is changing right now rapidly. We're in a whole new era of what good leadership looks like. And for men, many men who are enculturated around certain uh, dynamics of what masculinity looks like, this is an abrupt um, shift for them around who am I then if I have to learn new ways to lead or if I'm not able to or 
it isn't best for me to be the primary breadwinner. What does that mean to me if I'm a caregiver? What does it mean to me as a leader if I'm, for example, needing to find new tools beyond what I learned, which might be more command control, et cetera. So I think there's like a wide palette of challenges that men face today that that Tony does refer to when he talks about the man box. Yeah, absolutely. So Mo, what got you focused on this particular topic? I think one, and it's interesting to me because there are, and we'll talk about this more later, there are generational differences too. But one of the things that first got me really noticing, noticing some of the tensions that I felt men were feeling was in my role as a mom of two young men who are now in their 20s. And my boys, I have a daughter as well, who is um, also in her 20s. And, and when my boys were younger, as they got older, I noticed a pattern, which is actually highlighted really well in a beautiful movie, which you might have seen. It's a documentary called The Mask We Live In. And it explores the messaging that men get about the man box, as Tony Porter describes it. But I saw that happen in my boys, where their friendships in, in middle school and in, in primary years began to drop off as they entered into high school. They found themselves gravitating more to forming friendships with women and, and have said as young adults to me, boy, it's really hard to find men who are willing to be a close emotional connection for me. And so I think part of the journey for men is around emotional fluency. So what blocks that emotional fluency? Some of the research I'm sure you've seen, Joe, is about men are enculturated to, to express really only one emotion. It's a secondary emotion at that, which is the emotion of anger. And young men, even today, not only in previous generations, but even today, men and boys are given a lot of messages. Um, Jennifer Boson, who's a Flor- University of Florida researcher, talks about this, about what it about a very narrow band of what it means to be a man. And that includes not having emotions. Boys don't cry, be a man. And so men end up really a bit atrophied around emotional expression, around how to handle the hard emotions that are naturally occurring part of life, like rejection or failure. And so they end up stunted around their capacity to deal with really hard things, which also carries with it some stigmas around, for example, the, the historical notion of rugged individualism, men feeling that it is their job to do it alone. And I think that's part of the journey for men today that I see, young men and older men, which is how do I connect with other men to build a community? This is one of the places where I, as a woman, feel I've benefited so much from feminism. Because women's rights and the feminist movement has created so many networks for women, from book clubs to conferences to identity groups to ERGs to everything. I've got a lot of places I can go to connect with other women about what it means to be a woman. I don't see that proliferation happening with men. There are some. There's the Mankind Project. There's Better Man Movement. There are some things happening. And I feel it's really important because I think otherwise we continue to facilitate men feeling isolated and alone especially in that emotional uh, realm of how to cope with hard things, how to be vulnerable, um, and how to have how to be an emotional and feeling being. So how does this impact men, especially white males in the workplace? I mean, as you noted, we have women's groups and we have resource groups for every other dimension of diversity, but nothing really for white males. The feedback I get from my clients is that it makes it really hard for them to to process what it's like to be them. 
And I think the other thing that happens, and Michael Kimmel, who you may know, who wrote a book many years ago called Angry White Men, I have talked to Michael about this, and he, he continues to do wonderful research in the realm of masculinity as well. And he talks about how until men can identify, white men in particular, a self-interest in equity and inclusion, it's really hard for them to feel like the story makes sense for them. Anything we do for someone else doesn't last. If I get fit because my husband's worried about my health, it doesn't last. If I save money because my father thinks I should be an investor, it doesn't last. Like the stuff that lasts is the stuff that we're committed to because it benefits us. So I think that's one problem is that men don't have a way to talk with each other about how would equity and inclusion benefit me? What about this is going to help me and and my business and my life? How is it going to help me be better is one challenge. I think the other challenge is that it puts a disproportionate burden on women and people of color to educate and carry the water for men about their own equity and inclusion journey at work. So that men end up, white men in particular, in a more passive role. So not only are they not capable or not encouraged to see their own their own stake in why equity and inclusion matters for them, but they also, I think, are taken off the hook of doing the work that's necessary for them to figure out what does it mean to be allies. And then I guess the third thing I would say is that it, it creates that same narrow band for men who are in leadership roles or even as team members about what it really means to be a good colleague at work. Because that narrow band or that box creates real limitation with the kinds of connections that the majority of, of the world is it, we're now knowing really builds trust, builds camaraderie, builds social capital. So I think that there's a number of challenges that men face in the workplace that the history of our notions of masculinity doesn't really help. And by the way, Joe, I will add that the reason I wrote that TED Talk is particularly targeting women as well, to say, what do we do that sometimes limits healthy masculinity? What do I do as a woman that limits healthy masculinity at work and at home? Because that's my lane. And there are some things I do that limit men having healthy partnerships and healthy exploration of what it means to be them. That's their work. It's not my work. So that's a different piece if anybody wants to watch the talk. But I think there's a, a number of layers to what you're asking about the impact at work. So Mo, give me an example of how this shows up in a white male's personal life, followed by an example of how it shows up in his work life. No, like, um, oh, there's so many, where do I pick? I would say on a personal front, one of the things that I see that's very resonant, it has been resonant in my life, but I also see it being very resonant right now in, in, in the world in which I travel with client systems and friends and colleagues is what happens to men and their partners around income generation. So when you look at the numbers of women who are ascending, right, into senior roles or professional roles where their income may actually be higher than men, we see more men in a position, more young men today in a position to be primary at home. Because if you have the privilege of having a parent to be home, taking care of kids, especially right now in COVID, when kids are at home with both working, parents are making really hard trade-offs to say, okay, who should be home? And I remember when I was a young professional, my income was primary. And yet I often stayed home. And yet my job was the most because I felt the double bind that women often feel, which is I have to do both jobs really well. And I remember a conversation with my kid's dad all those many years ago about, hang on a second, let's rethink this. I'm making more money. When a kid is sick, what would it mean if you were home? If you took the day off or in a period where he was out of work, if you were the primary 
parent. And the tension for him was enormous. And it wasn't that he didn't love our children and he didn't, he wasn't a good caretaker and he didn't want to be, he was a great dad. He was a fabulous caretaker, but he had a, he had, he talked about a story in his head, which is like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be the one making the money. Yep. And so th- that story in his head was a real barrier in, in terms of identity. Who am I? Am I a good man? If I'm staying at home with our kids. And then if I do that, where do I build community? Cause I go to the playground and go to the school. It's all women who are at home. Now I had the same tensions where I was like, yep. yeah, and I'm the mom who can't volunteer at school, which was my guilt and shame. But his guilt and shame was more around this provider mantra. And I see that happening even today where we have young men and women um, or men with male partners who are saying one of us needs to be primary for the kid. And it can be really hard for society to uplift and support men as primary caregivers, like that they can take care of elderly parents or children. So that has both a personal and a professional for me. And we see in, 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 in corporations, we see that even with the proliferation of paternity leave for men, most men don't take it or they don't take all of it. They take a few days. So even though the law has made leave, parental leave equal, it's not being equally exploited by men and women because of, I think, some of that bias about caregiving. Yeah, that's a shame. What about how this shows up in the way men operate in the workplace? I think in the workplace where we sometimes see the tensions are that men are male leaders. I'll use an example of male leaders because I see this quite often, Joe. I'm sure you do too. Male leaders who are, they're good men. They're well-intentioned. They want to have an inclusive culture. And yet they have blind spots that they aren't paying attention to. And so they maybe get aware of something like a political incident happens or, or something goes on with a person of color or a woman in their team, and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They know they should do or say something, but they don't know what to do. And oftentimes what I see happen is men will choose then to do nothing. They'll do nothing. Um, An example I'm remembering a client described to me was that his, he was a CEO and he had a VP who was African-American who was devastated by the George Floyd murder, came to work that day, red-eyed, very, very traumatized. And the the CEO, who was a white male, saw this happening and knew, okay, there's something bad happening to a team member of mine. What do I do? And didn't know what to do, didn't know how to bridge that gap with empathy, and so did nothing. About three weeks later, that VP turned in his resignation. His stated reason was, I don't feel seen. I'm the only black man here. And when this devastating situation happened that impacted me and other people like me worldwide, my boss, the CEO, didn't even care enough to acknowledge what he saw in me. Now, that white CEO was shocked when that message happened. He was shocked that this employee resigned. And he was shocked that he had a role in it. Because his model, his story that he told himself was, the best thing I can do is just keep my head down and keep on working rather than finding a way to bridge the divide, which would have been very vulnerable. It would have required some real humanity and connection to check in with his colleague. How are you doing today? This news is bad. And I wonder how you're doing. And I think what the, what he said to me, what that white CEO said to me was I was taught to not see color. Mo. So I figured I didn't want to treat him any different than anyone else. And I understand the intention, Joe, as I'm sure you do. 
and yet it was a misfire. And in this case, he needed to see color because he had a black colleague, a black employee who desperately needed to be seen for what he was going through. So I think that's the, those are some of the places where for men, in this case, the white men, it, it is a real compelling call to do the work that would have prepared him to meet that colleague in a more authentic, more open-hearted, more empathetic way for his lived experience. Yeah, that's a great story, Mo, because it highlights one of the cultural disconnects between white male beliefs and everyone else's beliefs, color and gender blindness. So the white male belief is that if you act as if you don't see color or gender as a factor at work, that this is a good thing. Meanwhile, that's not what women and people of color actually want. Okay, so what can ERG leaders and other DEI leaders do to begin to bridge that divide? I think one thing we can do is to acknowledge white masculinity. Because one of the things that goes on with this, I don't want to, I, I was trained not to see color, is that as white people, I'll speak for myself, I never, I have had the privilege of never having to think about being white. I didn't even know I was white until I was 26, right? Now, if Joe, if you had met me on this street, it would have been obvious to you, like, duh, you're white. Why does I not know that? Not because I'm ignorant and stupid. I didn't know that because I had the privilege of mostly living with and being around white people. And as an insider in most situations, my whiteness is the majority. So I don't have to think about it. So I think one thing we can do with white men is to acknowledge whiteness and acknowledge white masculinity. I can't even tell you how many people said to me, why are you calling them white men? And I'm like, because they are white and they are men. Like, and it's almost yeah. like triggering to even acknowledge white masculinity. And I think that one of the things we can help each other at work is to acknowledge whiteness and acknowledge white masculinity. There is something called white male culture, which is not my word. It's the word of other researchers that came before who have said that Northern European culture, which migrated here to the U.S., has shaped everything about our capitalist system and how we do business. So let's understand what is white male culture. So step one in helping to build that bridge is to acknowledge that there needs to be a bridge, that there's something on the other side or there's a gap there, that there is a distinct thing called white male culture and that it has values and perspectives that need to be understood. Got it. What else? The second thing that I think is related to that, Joe, is let's stop shaming people by calling people racist when they say something stupid that is racist, because I really do believe we are all racist. We all grew up in a racist society. And so where I am racist, I can own saying something that's stupid or wrong or racist, and I can correct and I can do better next time. And I think one of the things that has happened, and I think it makes it really hard on white men, I see this play out all the time, is in diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations, white men just go dark. They don't see themselves in the conversation. They know it's not politically correct to say what they're thinking. So they say nothing because they don't want to be called out as stupid or called a racist or called sexist. So they say nothing, which to me is the most toxic thing of all. Because I would much rather have someone at work say, I'm really confused by this, Mo. Tell me, what is it the black people want to be called our organization again? (laughs) Like, I would rather have someone be totally confused and even ignorant than to have them be silent and not be part of the conversation because that's how we get, if someone doesn't understand, if, if I don't understand the impact of my own identity in my partnerships, if I'm not willing to look at that, then then I need 
colleagues who care about me to stand with me with care and with compassion, not with shame. Shame is never a healthy tool when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, which is making someone feel unworthy. You're unworthy, Mo, because you used a racist word. You're unworthy, Joe, because you noticed someone's color or you said something sexist. You're unworthy. That doesn't help, right? I can say to you, Joe, you are worthy. And something you just said really offended me. I, and I think that that helps them feel safe and also feel like they have some skin in the game. Okay, so step two is prepared to address missteps as an opportunity to coach and teach as opposed to labeling and attacking. So that's pretty much focus on the action or behavior, not on demonizing the actor. Good. What's another thing we can do? I guess the third thing I would say, I love it when men talk to men about their diversity and inclusion journey. When they get brave and they talk to other men, I remember in the Me Too movement, when it, when we had the, the Kavanaugh hearings and things, my son, who was, he must have been 21, 22, he's living in Canada, and he had posted something on social of himself walking down, down the street. It was like a parade, a, a protest parade or something, and he had on high heels, red high heels like this. And, and I called him, I said, oh, you were part of the protest all around me, the Me Too movement. What's that, what's that like? And he said, I'm having really rigorous, interesting conversation with my girlfriend and a lot of my female friends, but I can't get my white male friends to talk to me about what the Me Too movement is like for them. And he said, I'm really frustrated. And I thought, gosh, what a wonderful mindset. And I said, keep being curious. Because what he wanted to talk about with other men was, boy, what's it like to be us when so many of our female friends, colleagues, sisters, and mothers have had sexual harassment happen to them, what is it like to be me when that happens? And what it was like for him was it was devastating. It was sad. It was hard. He felt embarrassed. He felt ashamed. Even though he hadn't done yeah. those things, he still felt. And when he was able to talk to other men about that, it created connection and it fortified him, I think, probably to have good conversations with allies, other women that he worked with. And so I think men working with each other, challenging yep. each other, supporting each other takes takes the story in a different direction too. And it's not that they don't also work with people of color and white women and women of color. That's not, of course, they partner with us too, but it's also okay for men to do some of their work with men, just like women do some of their work with women. So step three is literally give white males their own space. We're like women or people of color or other groups. They have an opportunity to unpack and deal with their own feelings about things that are happening inside and outside the workplace today. And I agree with that. In fact, I think what you just talked about is the business case for the white male ERG. So let's pause here and take stock of what we've learned so far from Mo. One, men, including white males, are on a personal journey of cultural evolution right now along with everybody else. Two, white males like everybody else are struggling to redefine their identities in light of all the social and cultural change happening all around us. Three, since a culture can only progress as quickly or as slowly as the most resistant member will allow, it's important for champions of equity and inclusion to make sure they include white males in their journey. Four, there are three things ERG and all DEI leaders can do to invite white males into the journey. A. Get familiar with white male culture as a set of perspectives and beliefs that need to be part of the diversity and inclusion journey. We need to consider building bridges across other cultures and white male culture the same way we do with all the other cultural groups. B. 
Use cultural clashes as an opportunity to teach and learn, not to demonize. So focus on the action, not demonizing the actor. And finally, C, provide opportunities for white males to work with each other on the unique elements of their own diversity journey, much the way other groups do within the organization inside various ERG and BRG groups. When we come back, we're going to explore additional ways that ERG and BRG leaders can engage white males in the cause. But first, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Behringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. And we're back. So, Mo, when we left off, we had started talking about what ERG leaders can do to bridge the divide. What else can they do? I think there's a lot that, that ERGs can do. I really do. I think that one is to welcome them and to welcome them because of self-interest. Not just, hey, come join my trans ERG or my black ERG because I want you to be, I want you to help me. But come join because I want to help you. <laughs> I want to help you learn about yourself and about what it means to be you and how that experience might be different than your employees or than some of us. And you are welcome here. You are genuinely welcome here, which means that you are part of the conversation. You're not coming because you're going to take notes and go back and convert yourself to be better. You're going to bring yourself like the rest of us do. Got it. So rather than saying, hey, come join us to support my group, this is more of a come join us in our meeting because you will benefit. So Mo, can you give an example of how a white senior leader can benefit by going to an ERG group meeting? I remember a, a CEO client of mine of a, of a tech company based in, in Berkeley um, had found himself, as many tech companies do, with a very undiverse workforce, very few women and no people of color. It was a multinational company. And he, I was consulting to him at that time on a number of issues. And he said, what, what am I to do? I feel terrible. I, I'm, I'm aware that this is a problem. For 20 years, we've evolved to be this way. And I can't seem to be hiring the talent I need. What do I do? And I said, you know what? It's not your fault that you've shaped a company that actually has mostly people working here who look like you. That happened due to a whole series of events and who goes to STEM and where do you recruit. But now you're responsible for figuring out how to do things differently tomorrow to recruit a different talent pipeline. And how he could learn about some of that was to go to ERG meetings to learn about the experience. Now, in his case, he didn't have any, there weren't any ERGs. So one of the things he was able to do was to start some. So the few people of color and women he had in his company had a way to talk about what it was like to be them. And he got some reality check, just that little awareness of like, wow, the world out there is different. It feels different. 
to people who don't look like me. Just that is a powerful step. So I think ERGs can help a tremendous amount by including men, inviting them, and helping them identify their own self-interest. Yes. You know, I recently had a conversation with a CEO that told me about her experience in talking to her ERG groups where she said she learned a lot of stuff that she didn't know. And she said that now that she has spoken to these ERG group members and recognized the value of their perspectives, she would never go back to not talking to them. And this is a story I've heard from other CEOs and other senior leaders who've had that experience as well. So corporate ERGs are are really a great resource for learning about the different perspectives of people inside and outside the organization without actually having to even leave your own building. I was just struck with, I was thinking about in the post-George Floyd murder period, right, we had a huge uptick in interest in getting a grip on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Every company in the land from the smallest nonprofit to government was saying, uh-oh, we don't have a statement, we don't have a protocol, we don't have a process, we need help. And so companies like mine were very busy with inquiries. And one of the things that I think was really powerful was, and this is maybe a fourth thing that ERGs can help, is to help men and white men in particular to understand that there are no easy fixes here. This work of equity and inclusion, it took us, 500 years to get here in North America. And if there was an easy fix and we could just wave the wand and be like, okay, we're all now a culture of belonging. We see each other fully. We connect openly. If it was that easy, we would have already done it. So I think sometimes the, the white male culture characteristic of being a good problem solver actually gets in our way because we get woke and then we're like, oh man, this is terrible. I want to fix it. And what would happen instead if we said, oh my gosh, I'm woke. This is terrible. Tell me more, right? Help me understand more because I can see that there are layers of complexity that are that we're going to have to sort through together that are going to take some time yeah. and some collaborative effort as opposed to the riding in on our white horse that I think white people, myself included, white women do this too. We come in, once we get woke, we're like, oh, I'm all over this. And that's not that helpful. Yeah, good point. So let's talk about why so few white male leaders join these groups or attend their meetings. My own experience with this is that it's often due to a missing or vague ask. So here's what I mean by a missing ask. A couple of years back, I was asked by an organization that wanted to get more men to join their women's leadership group to help them identify the obstacles that kept men from joining. So I said, okay, well, send me everything you've got on this group. And, you know, the collateral material, the websites, the URLs, the communications, and so forth. And the first thing I noticed when I looked at all these materials was the language. In terms of things like, for example, it specifically stated that this was a group by women and for women that focused on developing women as leaders. So I pointed this out to the company and said, you know, it doesn't look like you're inviting anybody else except women. And they said, you know, Joe, we have this open policy. And these groups are actually open to everyone. Everyone is invited to join. To which I said, well, that's great, but spell it out. Be explicit. Make the ask. Invite. And also address directly what's in it for these non-female members. What will they get out of membership? What do you 
want out of them if they join? What will they contribute by their presence and their participation? Have a really clear message about what they will contribute and what they can expect to get. So in a nutshell, my advice to them was tell your workforce members across every dimension of diversity that they're invited and be really explicit about what's expected from them and what will be given to them. What are your thoughts on this, Mo? I think certainly the advice you gave to that group you were consulting to makes a ton of sense, which is to tell the story in a more inclusive way, which is this is why we exist. I think one of the things that sometimes happens, Joe, is that they largely were formed because you had outsiders, women and men and women of color and non-hetero identifying people, feel a need, they felt a need. They were often the only one on the team, the only one in the company. And so there became an identified need to have a safe way for the onlys to come together and garner support and ideas for how to be in an environment where they were the only. That was one of the original, they were employee resource groups. They were groups to support the employees. That's a very different intention than the role that ERGs have now come to play, I think, on actually helping companies create true cultures of belonging. Now, those two intentions can be at cross purposes. Because if I'm coming to a women's ERG, for example, for support with my career or to discuss how do I ask for more money or traditional challenges that I face as a woman at work, then I, I may really want to be primarily with women in that space. But I think that ERGs have a plus delta on why they exist around that transformation that the company is looking for. And some of the people that could help the most, and you said this earlier, Joe, the people who hold the power in almost every organization in the land, the people in the C-suite still are majority male in every sector and in every country. That is true. <laughs> so in order for any change to happen for the resource group grouping, Latinx, whatever, the men need to understand and be involved in finding a way to elevate and uplift and be in allyship to those communities if the company's going to change. And so I think what ERGs need to do is to become really clear with why do they exist and if they really exist for support of those people that group identifies, then that may not be the meeting or the topic around which they want to invite men. But for that other intention around creating a true culture of belonging to make sure that they know and that they have a way of telling their story that says we actually not only need you to be involved, men, we want you. We want to understand how you see us. We want to help you learn points of view that are different than yours so that you can help change policy. You can help change the way we roll. You can help us really become a culture of belonging. And I think for, I love what Sonia Renee Taylor talks about, which is that we don't self-appoint ourselves as an ally. We act. Allyship is a verb. So we, as an ERG, I should be working to tell the story to the people I want in allyship with me by inviting them into that active verb. Be in allyship. Come here. There's a place for you here to help us all make this company even better. And by the way, that will benefit you too. And let's talk about how it will benefit you too. So that it does feel welcoming. Because I think one of the things you asked, why do men sometimes not join? I think I think it's complex, but one that I hear often is they don't think they're invited. They feel afraid of being shamed or demeaned. Because remember, if I am a white person or I'm a white man, 
I didn't choose that. It's like you didn't choose to be Latino, Latinx, or black, or brown, or queer. You're born that way. So I think white men and men in particular may sometimes hesitate to join groups because they feel guilt or shame about something that they don't need to feel guilt or shame for. They were born that way. <laughs> and so they, so helping reassure and behaviorally demonstrate that this isn't yeah. going to be a place where yeah. you're going to come get beat up because of something that's out of your control. You're going to come and be, and if you're curious and open, you might learn to be a better leader and in stronger allyship. And I think that in that vein, I think men, many men um, really have gained so much by participating in a variety of ERGs. Great points. I love that plus delta approach to running an ERG where you can have meetings that are dedicated to some core members' needs. And then you can have other meetings where you can focus on benefiting and building bridges to allies. I think that's wonderful. And in those ally meetings, you can sometimes find common cause with allies that will help you to drive change, right? It was a large company that I worked with one time, Fortune 100 company had a, a variety of, of, a wide variety of ERGs. And one of the a senior leader, a white guy, joined the women's ERG. And one of the things the women's ERG was wrestling with is they were trying to take on incentive trips and leadership retreats for the company because the company had a long standing tradition of those kinds of meetings, also sales meetings, as being not particularly good for women. There was a lot of drinking and harassment that tend to happen. But also the activities picked were pretty exclusive, like golf or even in, in some cases, going to strip clubs and things. And so the women were really taking this on and saying, you know what, we've got to find other ways to have sales meetings when we don't have these kind of misogynistic practices. And this guy was listening and listening. He said, oh my God, thank you. He's, I have only learned to play golf because I felt like I had to. I'm not interested in the game and I certainly don't want to go to strip clubs. So it will be a breath of fresh air if we could make these dang meetings more interesting for real people. And what he articulated with, and it was so helpful for the women's ERG, was that he said, I've been afraid to step out against this because I inherited it and thought that's how I had to be. And actually you're helping me be brave. I don't have to play golf. I don't have to say, I love that. That's a great story. It illustrates how going to an ERG meeting to play the role of an ally can actually help the visitor to find a way to escape that restraining man box that we were talking about much earlier. Well, Mo, this has been insightful, and I'm positive that many of our listeners are going to want to reach out and hear more from you. So what's the best way for them to reach you? Awesome. Well, I am on I'm on LinkedIn, just Mo Carrick. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. People can find my website at www.mocarrick.com. It's all just my name. And then I did send you a link, which maybe you can share in the show notes for a free download of 10 ways to show up in the new year and lead. It's not only for men, but it might be helpful to men who are uh, working on their leadership journey. And I was thinking as you just were talking and as we wrap, I'm, I'm so, I take so much hope, Joe, in the younger generation of men that are coming in today because they're, they're really, I think, busting the norms and saying, actually, we want to do it a different way. And, and I'm excited about that in terms of how they work and how they lead. So it's, it's good work and we are in it together. And I really appreciate everything you do to help the ERG leaders to create those pockets for robust dialogue in their companies to make real cultures of belonging. So yeah, people can find me at all those places. I have a weekly blog and a newsletter called the Show Up Newsletter. And if you go to the website, you can sign up for that. And I'd love to hear from people and keep the dialogue going. 
Okay, so here's what I got from this segment of my discussion with Mo today. One, there is a lot that you as ERG leaders have to offer senior leaders and others who attend your meetings. Two, the key to getting senior leaders who do not share your group's dimension of diversity focus area to come to your meetings is to invite them and make it clear why you're inviting them. How will they benefit from attending this meeting? So for example, if you're inviting a white male to a woman's group or a Latinx meeting, explain how this will help them, say, for example, better understand and recruit more effectively from these communities. As Dale Carnegie used to say, talk in terms of the other person's interests. Three, build your meeting plans around the plus delta scheme. So, if you say lead a woman's network, have meetings that focus on supporting your female members with specific challenges and opportunities that they face, but then have other meetings to attract and serve potential non-female allies. And again, make clear what these allies are going to get out of the meeting, what you expect from them in the meeting. Make that all perfectly clear and explicit. And finally, four, at your ally sessions, be open about sharing your concerns and your challenges. You may discover, like the women and fellow in Mo's last story, that they also share the same concerns. But in the absence of visible support, they've not been able to muster the courage and other resources necessary to address a common problem. As I talk to Mo today about the power of leveraging your ERGs to build an inclusive organization one ally at a time, it reminded me of the poem Human Family by Maya Angelou, the American poet, memoirist, and civil rights activist. In it, she says the following, I know the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious. Some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profundity. And others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight. Brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts while laying side by side. We love and lose in China. We weep on England's moors and laugh and moan in Guinea and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland, are born and die in Maine. In minor ways, we're different. In major, we're the same. I note the obvious difference between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. As the poet says, in the end, 
We're all part of the human family on a similar journey towards enjoying life and getting past our own unique set of challenges and enjoying our own successes. And as ERG leaders, you have a special opportunity to provide the vehicle that joins us together and makes us stronger as we march towards a more equitable and inclusive future. And I urge you to make that a key part of your group's mission. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, contact me if you're looking for an ERG symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharger ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.